Good morning, Saltbox. It's uh, a great privilege to be with you again today in our online church setting. Um, I'm Michael Mattis. I pastor Saltbox Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I want to give a warm welcome to you anywhere you are, wherever you're tuning in, whether it's on our podcast or a Facebook Live or somewhere else. Uh, we just want to say welcome, and we're glad that you're um, sort of circling in and part of our church family during an unusual time. So stay tuned. Our elders are working um, on sort of re-entry and regathering and looking to the future. Um, we're in the middle of a defining moments kind of collection of talks. And um, it's just there's so much richness as I look across the whole Bible. Um, so I hope you, you pull out a Bible and uh, maybe even a paper Bible so you can underline some things and circle some things and highlight some things. But I'm in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 30, and we're going to take a look at David um, and a group of his uh, men that he is sort of traveling with, camping out and living all in caves and all over the place. And, you know, what's interesting here is um, David has literally been uh, sort of on the run for approaching 14 years. I mean, he, he, has, um, he was anointed um, by the prophet Samuel. That's who this book is named after. But he's, he's anointed and he's told that God is going to raise him up and make him uh, king. And he literally, it's, it's years and years and years and years have gone by. And in some ways, I think David's probably at a spot of vulnerability. And even his men, I think, are at a spot of vulnerability. And they're traveling with their families. And they're probably at this point where um, they're almost ready to give up. They're almost ready to give out. They're, they're uh, questioning, I think, the promises of God. They're questioning the faithfulness of God. And sort of everything is on the table. And you get this idea even that, that David's going, God, is, is what you said really going to happen? Is, is what you promised really going to unfold? Is, is what you told me would happen when I was a young man? He's, he's an older man now. Are you really going to do that? And, you know, for many of us as Christians, there's things that we sense in our hearts or things that we feel like we've even heard from the Lord, destiny, if you will, that he's called us into. And, and if we're not careful, as we hold those things um, the circumstances of life and the challenges uh, of what we're living in and what we go through, sort of um, those, those things that we hold can kind of leak out, leak through our hands so that, that we begin to lose faith in this God and in his promises. So as we look at King David here, or rather David before he becomes king, what I really want you to do is make some parallels um, to your own life. Where are you in terms of what God's promised? Where are you in terms of your trajectory? And what we're going to look at, especially in this passage, is where is David's gaze and, and where is um, the gaze of his men? So by gaze, I mean it's sort of the fixed spot that you're intently looking at. It's where you keep your um, the eyes of your heart, your mind, um, even your emotions. It's what are, you, what are you gazing upon? So that's kind of what we're going to look at um, this morning. But I would also say this is probably David's last hurdle. Um, in other words, when you look at people who are used powerfully from Genesis to Revelation, one of the things God always does is he always brings them to the end of themselves. Uh, and that's often painful. Um, 
God actually brings uh, those that he wants to use powerfully, he, he brings them sort of to the end of their ego, the end of their self, the end of their arrogance, the end of their pride, the end of their self-sufficiency. And, and it's in these difficult situations often that the Lord uses to hone someone and shape someone, almost like a block of wood. You can see a carpenter working a block of wood. So God uses difficulties and challenges to prepare you for what's ahead. And some of what's ahead is in eternity, not just on planet Earth. Um, but I, I think I would also invite you, um, as you listen to this, as we walk through this as a church family, to actually begin to go, where is God still honing me? Where is he still bringing me to the end of some of myself or even my ego or my pride or my presumption or whatever it is, my need to be at the center? Because that's really what we're seeing here. And David's facing probably his darkest hour right before the dawn, probably sort of a final um, test. And we get to see him come through it beautifully. So that's going to be my prayer, not just uh, for you, but for me, for us as a church. So the span of time um, between God's promise and his fulfillment uh, at times produces discouragement. It's hard to trust God in that. And so anyway, let's, let's dig in. So I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 8. David and his men reached Ziklag. There's about 600 of, of men sort of traveling with him and their families. So there could be, you know, 2,000 or even 3,000 people traveling with David. And it says, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. And I think it's really important to point out, God had actually called King Saul a few chapters earlier to destroy the Amalekites, and Saul didn't. And because Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites, the Amalekites now are circling back and they're attacking David. It's just a, it's really not the point of the message, but I think it's fascinating when God calls us as people to do something. It is so important that we obey him and follow through. It is so important that we yield sort of to the king of heaven and, and give him our lives and obey. So because Saul didn't obey, David is now in this position. It says they attacked Ziklag and they burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. So everyone's been sort of kidnapped or captured, and they've been literally hauled away. Children and women and whatever men were left there. Verse 3, when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had literally been taken captive. And you know, maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Uh, maybe you're facing even a chronic illness. Maybe you're facing, um, I don't know, economic hardship or health hardship or some other type of hardship. But literally, that's, that's what's happening here. Their sons and daughters have been taken captive. Verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. You know, there's only been three or four times in my entire life that I would say I've wept um, like what I assume this is. And we have two daughters with type 1 diabetes, and um, one of them almost didn't make it out of a, a coma. And that was the first time I think I ever experienced um, sort of just, there was, a, there was a little footstool, and I literally laid my chest on the footstool and, and wept until I had no strength left to weep. But that's literally what's happening here. David and his men have wept aloud until they have no strength left to weep. Verse 5, David's two wives had been captured, Ananoah of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Caramel. 
David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. So that literally in the Old Testament, they'd take big chunks of stone and they would um, throw them at a person's head and torso until they died. So that's literally what they're talking about here. Stoning him, each one, so David's men, was bitter in spirit. That's gonna be important. We're gonna come back to that. Because of his sons and daughters that were gone. This is a crux right here. But David found strength in the Lord his God. The King James Version says, David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Verse seven, then David said to Abithar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And the ephod is a vest that was made in, under Mosaic covenant and law. And um, the chief priest wore it. And it's, it's symbolic of consulting God, inquiring of God, asking God. So David literally says, bring me the ephod. And Abithar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, God answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Lord Jesus, would you enliven our hearts with your word? Father, I pray we wouldn't just be hearers of it, but that we would be doers of it. Lord, I pray that we would eat um, of your word, the bread of life this morning. In your name we pray, amen. You know, the, um, our kids have laughed at me upon occasion because um, I don't watch football and I don't watch soccer and I mean, I enjoy them, but I don't really follow them and I, I don't really watch um, baseball or basketball or, you know, I, I, I don't do any of those things. What do I follow? I actually watch surfing. And in, in the professional world of surfing, um, I, I follow the, um, the world tour and the world tour culminates at a place called Pipeline in Hawaii. And what's amazing about um, this place called Pipeline is these waves come in, and I should also tell you, I'm a thoroughly mediocre surfer. I do like to surf. Um, I've only had a handful of barrels in my entire life, but I do like to surf, and I love to watch it. And so the, the, all these people gather at Pipeline, and these waves come in, and, and when the waves break, um, these guys paddle for the waves, and, and gals paddle for the waves, and then they jump up, and usually it's a left, so they're going to grab the edge of their board if they're a front-hand rider, and they're going to sort of go down the wave, and then the wave sort of curls over the top of them, and they get barreled. And what's interesting, there's a couple interesting things that I'll actually come back to, but what's interesting here is um, the, the entire professional world of surfing culminates with a spot that has to do with taking off at the most dangerous spot, at the most unmakeable spot, at, at the spot where it looks like you're gonna get absolutely trounced on the rock reef below you. And, and it is the one who walks away the victor is the one who puts themselves literally in the most life-threatening spot and makes it. They usually are the one who walk away with sort of the world title and the pipe master crown. And the other interesting thing as, as I sort of thought about this passage and even about this analogy is when you, when you catch a wave, you paddle for a wave, you jump up, you grab that rail, and you're going down the line, it's fascinating because your gaze is so important. So in other words, when you're riding down that wave and the, and the, and the wave begins to barrel over you, your gaze, um, in other words, if you're looking around, Guess what's gonna happen? You get rolled. If you're, if you're riding down that wave and your gaze is looking back, guess what's gonna happen? You're actually gonna uh, turn your board and you're gonna get rolled. If your gaze is um, somewhere between uh, up and um, forward, you'll often make it. 
And I think I wanna take a look at that and even use that kind of as a word picture because there's, there's two things here. David is at this um, enormously critical spot. He is, um, he is at the very end of a marathon. He is so exhausted, he is so tired. God has promised he's gonna be king. And what's fascinating is literally one chapter later, so we're talking days, we're talking weeks, it's not long later, Saul dies and as soon as Saul dies, guess what? David becomes king. So David is literally at the end of this marathon. He's at the end of this journey. He's at the end of this long drawn out process where God's been shaping him and honing him and breaking him and bringing him to the end of his ego and bringing him to the end of his own pride and his own grandiosity to the point where he will truly bow the knee in contrition before Yahweh, the one God. And so here we are, and literally what we begin to see as David is right here at the end is he and his men have done a three-day march um, back to Ziklag. And three days march in the Middle East, it's like desert and mountains. It's, it's surly and it's rugged and it's hot and everybody's tired and everyone's worn out. And literally they get there and it says their entire families have been taken. And I think probably in this moment, uh, what, what begins to happen is all of these years where these guys have been banded together following David, hoping that he would become king. It's like everything gets put on the table and they're like, we're done. Like, like we give up, like we've been waiting for this. We've been given our whole lives for this. We've given absolutely everything. And we've come to this point where our wives and our kids and everything that we love has been plundered and taken. And they're sitting in this moment and they don't even know in this moment whether their kids and their families and their wives are alive or dead. In fact, they're probably assuming uh, they're dead. And so my first point that I, I wanna make for you is they look inward. And I think that's healthy. So David and his men literally look inward. It says in verse four, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. So there's, there's, um, there's a good looking inward. There's a, a healthy looking inward. There's a, an introspective place where the Holy Spirit can come to convict or to encourage or to lift or to bless or to send. And there, it's, a, it's a godly spot when the Lord leads to, to look inward. And yet you can um, look inward for so long that you actually uh, begin to lose heart or lose courage, you lose vision, you lose purpose because you're now looking or sort of navel gazing um, instead of looking forward or looking up, looking ahead. And I, I think what we begin to see here is um, David and his men are all of a sudden lonely and they're afraid and they've dis they're disheartened and they're losing courage. They're losing the desire to continue. Even David himself, I think some of these tears are just like, oh my goodness, I've lost everything. What value even is life itself? And they're almost despairing. You could even say they could even be suicidal. They've lost the desire to continue. And I would make a little note here that I think the difference between a, um, a, a new believer and a believer who's matured a little bit in their journey is someone who um, begins to know and understand how to encourage themselves in the Lord, how to um, find rest in him, how to gain courage. And you know, if I, if I pause there a minute, uh, courage is the mental or moral strength to venture, to persevere, to withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. And what's interesting is disheartened literally means um, to lose hope, enthusiasm, or courage. So uh, these men um, and David, they all look inward, probably initially in a healthy way. They're all weeping bitterly, maybe like I wept um, when my little Eve was in the hospital. And they, they, they have wept until they have no strength left to weep. And then there's probably a change where God wants them to shift their gaze. 
because they've looked inward. And God's now saying, shift your gaze. And instead of shifting their gaze in obedience to God, they begin to do two things. So first point, they look inward. Second point is they begin to look around and they begin to look back. Now go back to the surfing analogy. You're trying to ride a barrel, you drop in, you grab, the, you, you grab that rail, you begin to look around, you begin to look back, what's gonna happen? You're gonna get rolled. No way you're gonna make it out of that barrel. So all of a sudden, God begins to speak to these men and he's saying, shift your gaze, shift your gaze off of yourself, lift your gaze. And instead, they begin to look around and they begin to look back. And I think what begins to happen is their own um, sort of frustration builds up and it gets dicey really fast. And let me also say here, there's seasons when it's okay to look around. There's even seasons when it's okay to look back. But as a whole, God is going to, continue, going to keep you looking both up and looking forward. So it's interesting. There's probably two major things that you begin to see here. David's men begin to blame him. They've got to blame someone. Man, I actually think blame is one of the most dangerous things that the enemy tries to get Christians hung up in. Because we as Christians, it goes very back to the beginning of the story of Adam and Eve. Well, who made you do it? The serpent made me do it. Well, Adam, who made you do it? Well, Eve made me, and we love. I mean, I cannot believe the degree to which people, um, and I should include myself in that, the, the degree to which we all point the finger and blame. Like we all love when something goes wrong to find someone else who did it. Uh, I run a very small landscaping company, and when something goes wrong, like a truck gets a new ding on it, or somebody breaks something, or whatever, you wouldn't believe it. Everybody's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, there's fingers going everywhere. It's the same even in our home. I mean, I, I watch even between Abby and I, if I'm real vulnerable, something happens and it's like the temptation is to, to point the finger. I mean, I think the enemy actually hangs up Christians as much as anything, um, you know, puts them into a spot where, where if the enemy can get you blaming someone else, focusing on somebody else's motives, focusing on what they did wrong or what they failed to do, then, then you He's got you totally derailed, and you're actually in danger of missing what God has for you. See, the Holy Spirit will always lead us um, to forgive others and to focus on ourselves. Always. The Holy Spirit will always lead you not only to forgive, but then to focus um, uh, out there on, on yourself in terms of personal sin, but then to focus sort of uh, where you're headed and then up on him. So a, a, let me give you a possible definition of sin. This isn't um, uh, every definition of sin, but it's a definition of sin. Uh, uh, sin can be the meeting of a legitimate need um, in an illegitimate or sinful way. So I'm gonna set mental health aside because I think there's legitimate um, mental health issues that, that come into play, and I'm really not speaking to that. So just let me set that aside. But uh, oftentimes, um, people's addictions um, can be the meeting of a need that God intends to meet. So in other words, it's a legitimate need. Like, you have a need. I have a need. And yet, when we uh, fail to go to God to get that need met, and instead we go um, to some place that we shouldn't, all of a sudden we get into trouble. That's really what, what addiction is. So David's men 
have a legitimate need. I mean, they need to get their families back. They need to get their kids back. They need hope for the future. They need hope about where they're going and how they're gonna get there. So they have this legitimate need, but all of a sudden they're like, let's pick up these big stones and let's just clobber David on the head until he dies because that's gonna meet my need, right? How often do we blame? How often do we point the finger? How often are we ugly at people? You know, Jesus says in the New Testament, Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. That's revolutionary. So David's men get off. They're looking around and they're looking backwards. They have a legitimate need. You know, as, as we're parked here, I, want, I would want to at least say um, a marriage problem, those of you who are married, uh, is rarely a marriage problem. Uh, a marriage problem is frequently two individuals with heart problems. And the two individuals with heart problems are coming together making another big problem. But, but in, in marriage counseling, what you attempt even to do is, is to help the two sort of uh, di- disentangle, stop pointing the finger, stop blaming, and then get both parties beginning to look up, look inward as appropriate, and then look up, and then look forward. Stop looking around, stop looking back. Because when you start looking around and pointing the finger, when you start looking back, you are destined for trouble. This is a defining moment for King David because see, all of a sudden, these are the friends that have been loyal to David for all these years. And like for years and years and years, these guys have walked with David. They've camped out together. They've lived in caves together. They're cooking breakfast and dinner over fires. They march together. They go to war together. I mean, when you talk about the bond, I've got a couple of Navy SEAL friends and they'll talk to me about the bond um, that exists between them and a comrade that they go to war with. There's, a, there's an unbreakable bond. You trust those people when you're not looking at them. You know, I, I've never been in the military, but I, I used to rock climb, and there's a similar bond there. When someone's belaying you and you're climbing up the face, you're literally trusting them with your life when you're not looking. So David is, is in the middle of this place where he has journeyed with these 600 men, and of the 600, there were some called mighty men who are even closer to him, but he's journeyed with these guys and he trusts them with his life. He trusts them when, they're not, when he doesn't even look at them. He trusts that they're gonna make good decisions. And all of a sudden, the people that he trusts most in the entire world are picking up stones going, we're gonna kill you. Like, talk about being betrayed. Reminds me of Jesus in the New Testament when the disciples deserted him, when Peter bailed out, when all the other guys ran. I mean, it's... It's like God, if he is going to use a person powerfully, is gonna bring you to the point where you can't trust in your friends, you can't trust in anyone around you, you can't trust in circumstances, you can't trust in money, you can't trust in your education, you can't trust in your car or your house or your job or your good name or your reputation. No, no, he brings you to the point where if he is going to use you powerfully, he's gonna fill you with his spirit and he's gonna use you to affect and change a piece of your world with the power of the gospel, he will bring you to the place where you can only trust in him alone and your gaze must be up. So David's men look around, David's men look back. And then the other thing that we see here is David's men literally become bitter. So David's men blame, number one, they become bitter, number two. Now, Hebrews 12, 15, I love this uh, verse, but it says, see to it, that none of you falls short of the grace of God. 
and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, listen to me, church. I actually think that nothing is more serious um, than when the enemy can get you, number one, blaming other people, but number two, stuck on your own bitterness. We've all um, have a, a history, right? And there's, there's a place and a time. I've spent uh, several years of my life going through counseling, reconciling the past. There's a place to deal with um, the past. There's a place to, um, even in your active daily life, to acknowledge that so-and-so has done something to hurt you or this person has caused you pain. And, it, and it's even okay. I would say in my regular daily life, there's spots where I go, Lord, would you empower me to forgive this person? Lord, would you empower me to forgive that person? Lord, I I don't even like this person right now, but I choose to forgive. Because see, what happens, literally it's saying here, is you can fall short of grace if you let bitterness grow up inside of you. It's interesting because in daily life, if you're around someone, um, and uh, roommates are really helpful for this, um, spouses are helpful for this, uh, kids as they get older can be helpful for this because they'll point it out to you courageously. Um, but, but what you can actually begin to see in a person's life is they're doing great, everything's fine, and then a topic comes up and they go, ah, right? Or someone's name is mentioned and all of a sudden, and you get to see this bitterness that kind of just erupts. I mean, I've seen in my own life, I could tell you story after story where the way the Holy Spirit has gotten my attention to say, Michael, you have bitterness in your heart as a situation arises, somebody says something about someone or someone's or a different group or whatever it is, and all of a sudden I realize there's ugliness coming up in me. And I go, oh, Holy Spirit, I've got bitterness in my heart. Church, don't fall short of the grace of God by hanging on to your own bitterness. When you hang on to unforgiveness towards another person, it, it doesn't do anything to them. It, it enslaves you. It puts your own heart in bondage. And the entire message of the gospel is one of hope and, and freedom. And so if the enemy can get you blaming other people, not taking personal responsibility, and then if the enemy can get you um, in a spot where you're bitter about even one or two things uh, as you look around or as you look back, all of a sudden he's got you enslaved and ensnared to the past and to something that has already happened, and you're not going to be number one looking up and number two looking forward. It's one of the biggest traps of the enemy, in my opinion. People who walk in bitterness, number one, poison themselves. They're gonna poison their family, their roommates. They're gonna poison their church. They're gonna poison everyone you meet. You know, Abby and I used to run a summer camp and um, I was the executive director and we love summer camp. But one of the things that happened every year is we would get people um, who would get uh, frustrated with someone and bitter and then they would gossip and talk about their bitterness. And all of a sudden it's all around camp and there's 60 or 70 staff members and I'd have to bring them into my office and go, what's going on? So what we started doing is in staff training, um, we would actually uh, have one person um, and we didn't always uh, complete this all the way to the, to the final analogy of it but, it, but it's a very powerful illustration. But we call one person up in front of staff training and we'd have them dip their hands in peanut butter 
and they'd rub peanut butter all over and we'd make the people who had um, peanut allergies step aside and not be involved in this because that would be dangerous. But anyway, we'd get peanut butter on their hands and then we would say to the person with peanut butter, okay, go interact with someone and we would symbolically say interacting is interlocking fingers like this. So the person with peanut butter would go up and they would interlock fingers with someone and guess what's now on that someone's hands? Peanut butter. And then we'd say, okay, now the person that you've just talked to, uh, you don't have peanut butter on your hands, you go talk to somebody else. So they'd walk over somewhere else in the room and they'd interlock fingers with somebody and guess what they've just done? So in literally one, two, three interactions, we now have four people. I don't know if I did the math right on, my, on the spot, but we now have four people. And so we'd, ha- we'd have each of those people um, sort of talk to or interlace fingers, interact with three different people. And all of a sudden, everyone's got peanut butter on them. I think this is a great analogy because it's what bitterness does. It's like if, if you have bitterness inside of you, it's like carrying something like peanut butter on your hands and literally everyone that you touch is now gonna be a carrier of that. Like, like bitterness, um, it, it spreads like wildfire and it can like catch and you can, you can all of a sudden, I've talked to people and they'll tell me about someone or something or some church or some group or some gathering or some business or whatever and I, I don't even realize it but I've taken on some of their peanut butter and then I'm living my life, doing my thing and somebody brings that group up and I'm like, yeah. Like where does that even come from? That is bitterness that has literally taken hold in your heart. So David's men are looking around. David's men are looking back. They're falling into blaming someone, David. They've fallen into bitterness, literally, in spirit. And then this is the crux of the message, number three. So number one, all of them look inward appropriately, but then they look around, they look back. Then King, or not King David, anointed to be King David, looks Upward. Let's look at verse six, the very end of verse six. I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Here it is. But David found strength, or David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So literally we see David choosing in a situation where he could get angry back, where he could uh, retaliate, where he's the, sort of the leader. He could even try to get people on his side and they could have this big you know, split or whatever would have happened. Instead of doing any of those things, you immediately see David shift his gaze from looking inward to now looking upward. So King David aligns himself now with God. And, you know, I have to imagine, because David in in all the Psalms sort of forges a relationship with Yahweh, with this one God, as the Hebrews would have called him. And I have to imagine that what happened here is very profound because all these guys are bitter at David. They want to kill him. And my guess is David goes, I got to get right. I got to gaze at my Jesus, at my Yahweh, at the one God. And I I imagine David grabbed his harp and he backed out the back door and he went up into the mountains. And what he probably did is he began to play and he began to worship and he began to write psalms and he began to sing and he begins to worship his creator God. You know, in fact, I'd love to read Psalms 34 because it's what I imagine David uh, would have written and would have sung during this time. You know, I'm not sure. There's some um, people would say it's Psalms 4. Some people even said it's Psalms 40. But regardless, let's look at Psalms 34, verses 1 through 4. Here's what David writes. I will extol the Lord at all times. That's like um, honor, praise, give glory to the Lord. 
His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. David's afflicted right now. And he's literally saying, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse four, I sought the Lord. Isn't that good? I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You know, when we begin to look upward, I think it requires us to withdraw to a place where we can worship, to a place where we can pray. You'll hear me as a pastor call you to be in a one-year Bible. It doesn't matter whether you're in a one-year Bible or a regular Bible. What the one-year Bible does for me is it gets me in the Word daily. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs. Every day I'm like eating of the bread of life, eating of the Word. I have a five-year journal. So for me, uh, my own worship time, my own prayer time, my time in the Word, my time as I write and even look at my own life and evaluate things like my own bitterness or blame or things that are going on in my heart, those are ways that I daily shift my gaze upward. And I think what we begin to see here is David literally encourages him himself in the Lord. You know, Jesus in Matthew 6, said it like this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, you're not gonna solve your problem by dealing with your problem. You're gonna solve your problem when you throttle back, when you begin to worship, when you begin to get your gaze on him, because when you orient your life, your marriage, your family, if you're single and have roommates, wherever you are, when you orient your life around King Jesus, when you fix your gaze upon him, everything else falls into alignment because there is no name like the name of Jesus. And when you glorify the name of Jesus and put him in the right spot in your life, everything else falls into alignment. So we have David literally looking upward. And the last thing that we do is we see David looking forward. Go back to my surfing analogy. They drop in a pipeline, they grab that rail, they're going down the wave, they're looking forward, they're looking upward at the wave breaking around them, and that is the one who successfully comes out of the barrel. That is the one who wins the pipe master. How does David become king? How does David walk through this last great turmoil of his life? He looks upward and he looks forward. So under the direction of this one God, he chooses to go, I believe that you're good no matter what. I'm gonna trust you no matter what. You know, I can only imagine, but the voices in David's head at this moment must have been huge. They're gonna get you. They're gonna turn on you. You can never trust them again. You, 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 you need to get rid of them all because they, they tried to stone you. I mean, you can just imagine that the voices in David's head, even the voices that are lying in his head about who God is, God's promises aren't gonna happen. God's not gonna fulfill what he said to you. You're never gonna become king. There's not a chance that you're gonna be this. You're gonna die in the wilderness. And as David worshiped, my guess is as he played that harp, God begins to call him to look forward. And you know, it even says that David that inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him, pursue. We don't have time to get into the rest of the chapter, but they ended up going after 
the Amalekites, and they recovered every man, every woman, every child, every one of their, their spouses. Nobody was killed. They, they recovered all their livestock and all their plunder, and then they got all this other wealth from the Amalekites. And you know what was, what was fascinating is you get a, a sense of David and his ability to look forward because um, 200 of the men in the latter part of this chapter actually are so tired, they're like, we can't go, we can't go on. So they stay back, and 400 of the men go, and when, when they get back with all of these goods and all the, the wives and the kids, and there's such great celebration, the 400 go, we're not going to share the plunder with the 200 that bailed out on us. And David rises up and goes, no, 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 no. We're going to share and share like the whole 600 of us. And you get to see David as a man who's let go of bitterness. David is a man who's let go of blame. David is a man who has bowed the knee before his God. David is a leader who is ready to walk in humility, to uh, encourage and to forgive and to love people and to lead people. You know, we've just had this hurricane. And one of the things that I love to do in a hurricane is I love to stand on my porch. That's funny. And... um, I love to stand on my porch because uh, oftentimes there's lightning and the wind is driving and the, you know, the, the rain is roaring. And you know, if, depending on how big the storm is, the trees begin to bend. And I love to stand out there because it reminds me of how insignificant I am and how big he is. I love to stand at the edge of the ocean I love to stand on a mountain peak because it reminds me that this creator God has called me to fix my gaze on him and then he has commissioned me to fix my gaze forward. It reminds me of how big he is, how big his reach and all of my problems, all of my anxieties, all of my cares grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious creation. I love to watch the moon rise and the sun set because he is God. As we wrap up this morning, here's my question for you. Where's your gaze? Are you looking around? I can't believe what they said on Facebook. I can't believe what this political party is doing or that political party. I can't believe what this Christian said. I can't believe what they did to me. Are you looking back? Maybe you're looking back at the good old days. Can't wait till we get back. Church, we're not going back. We're going forward. Where is your gaze? Is your gaze up onto him, Yahweh, King Jesus? Is your gaze forward? Because he's commissioned you to walk out his purposes on the earth. You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're listening to me, <clears throat> and you're going, God doesn't care about me. And I would say to you, he cares about you. He cares about you intimately. And if you've never surrendered your life to this Jesus, so, some people would say, if you've never accepted Jesus, and I, I'd go, well, yeah, kind of, but for, for me, as I read the Bible, it, it's, a, it's a full surrendering. It's, it's coming to him and, and going, Lord, uh, in my own self, I can't, uh, I can't make it. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't earn my way into your presence. And he 
He bridged that gap by sending his son. Christ Jesus came, he walked on the earth, fully God, fully man, and he actually went to a cross and was killed for us. Uh, But he wasn't just killed because three days later he broke the chains of death. He, He broke the chains of hell. He broke the chains of sin and he rose from the dead. And he calls us as people to surrender our lives to him. And no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how difficult a situation you're in, no matter how bad it is or how bleak it is, you might look at me and go, you have no idea what I've done. I can't even get out of this mess I've created. I would say to you, when you fix your gaze on King Jesus and then you fix your gaze forward on what he's called you to, he will cause everything in your life to align with him. Now you've got to walk it out. Sometimes it takes years. But I want to invite you to surrender your life to him. If that's you, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to first acknowledge that I am a sinner. I want to acknowledge that you are God, creator of the universe, Lord of heaven and earth. I want to acknowledge that I've fallen short of your holy plan, of your righteousness. I want to ask that you would forgive me for all my sin, sin of my past, sin of my present, even sin of my future. Would you come in? Would you cleanse me from that sin? Would you make me new? Would you resurrect me? Would you fill me? Would you walk with me and teach me to walk with you? In your name I pray, amen. Churches, Missy and Daniel come back and close us with a song. I'd wanna say two things. Number one, if you surrendered your life to King Jesus, reach out, text us, call us. We wanna help you get plugged into a church, get a Bible in your hands get you baptized in water and pray with you to be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, if you're a believer already, you may be sitting there going, you know what, my gaze is not on the right things. Would you let the Holy Spirit sift your heart as Missy and Daniel play? Would you let him and and would you repent before him? That just means turn. That just means say, God, will you forgive me? And, And would you shift your gaze back to and then forward where he's called you.